0: is up with that bumper. <laughs> Pastor Jerry, the first service said I should sing the, song, sing the words to that song. I don't know the words of that song yet. Anybody else know the words of that song? The bumper song? Nobody knows that one, right? I, I also have a question. Does anybody think that the white motorcycle will lose one of these times? <laughs> I keep thinking one of the other ones are gonna win and, and it hasn't happened yet, so. Well, welcome to uh, uh, our our service here today. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. If you are watching online... Uh, or uh, just here for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're uh, here and and stepping into our church for a little bit. We've been doing a a series in the month of January where each of our pastors are taking one paragraph of Luke chapter 9 and preaching it, and so uh, today's my turn. Uh, If I haven't met you, my name is Nate. I'm the pastor of Mission and Ministry uh, Development here, and uh, as we open God's Word uh, here this morning, uh, I want us to begin to think a little bit more about this topic of evangelism um, in one particular way. Uh, Let me tell you a story to get us going in the right direction. I remember when I was uh, in high school, uh, some of my friends and I got together and we're like, we know that we're supposed to do this thing called evangelizing, uh, but we don't know how to do it. And so we came up with a little game plan. We got together and we decided that, uh, you know how they write those, those uh, gospel tracts uh, in writing? We, we grabbed a stack of those and we kind of studied through one of those. And then we all went to the mall and we cold cocked people. What I mean is we'd walk up to them and we'd say, hey, have you ever heard about Jesus? And can I tell you about Jesus? And then we would, I, I, I don't know what we were thinking. It was really boring. We would just read through the material and um, we got mocked. We got laughed at. Nobody believed Jesus because of us being out there that night that I know of. And it was just this horrible experience. We learned that you need to be bold to be an evangelist, but we also learned something really important. We learned that if you have no connection and you don't make a connection with somebody, they don't really want what you're selling. Uh, I was just in Costco the other night and, and lived this out. Some lady wanted me to taste her little ham thing, you know, and I was like, no way. Because it was just the first response. You're selling something, I'm not buying it. And that's kind of how it felt. And so I got to this spot where I began to realize this evangelism thing, it's kind of hard and, and there's some skills that I need to learn to be able to do it. So do you guys, do you guys feel like evangelism is, is kind of hard sometimes? Is that one of the harder things in the Christian life you're supposed to do, Yeah. Yeah, I think we all uh, kind of feel that way. There's there's lots of reasons for it. Um, uh, I think it's. Pretty easy to be afraid to tell somebody about Jesus. Anybody? Anybody afraid about that? Raise your hand. Yeah, actually, you're afraid. So you're like this, right? Um, yeah, I get that. Some people are like, man, I just don't know what to say. Does anybody not know what to say? Like, like even if it was like teed up on a golden platter, you'd be like, I don't really know what to say. Um, there's there's all sorts of reasons. I think sometimes we we don't do it, and then we get this snowball of guilt rolling down the hill. I don't do it, and I should do it, and then I'd feel bad, and then I just don't do it because I. I feel bad. And I think also we just don't pray. We just don't pray evangelistically. We don't pray for people who are lost. We don't pray for opportunities to tell people who are lost. I, th- I think that's probably actually stage number one that we don't do. We don't pray. And for sure, I think we struggle with finding how to connect to somebody and tell them about Jesus. And today, I want us to see that the text of Scripture, the paragraph we're going to look at, is teaching us how to connect to people and tell them about Jesus. How to have the right starting point for those opportunities that God wants to use you to be a witness for Him. So we know that the Bible teaches us that we are sent that's the title of this series, and Pastor Jerry kicked us off and helped us see that. In Luke chapter 9, verse 2, we see that Jesus sends out his followers, his 12 disciples, and, and this is actually the beginning of him training them how to be apostles. They've been followers and disciples up to this point, they've watched Jesus do ministry, but they've never participated in it themselves yet. They've just been observers, but now he teaches them. He begins to train them how to be sent, and so he takes them or he sends them out on a mission trip, and he gives them some concepts about how they are to actually go about this business. Now, one of the things that we need to make sure we continue to see is that when he says that he sent them, the the Greek word there is apostello where we get the word apostle from. Apostles are sent ones. They're not apostles yet, but but they're sent ones. And, And literally that word means to send someone as an official representative with authority. So when we say that we are trying to become, learn how to be sent, what we're saying is, God, would you teach me how to be your official representative that goes with your message and with your authority and with your power? Pastor Jerry actually helped us see that, how if we're going to be sent, we need to depend upon the power and the authority that Jesus gives us to do evangelism. And then last week, Pastor Ed was was preaching and he took us a little bit further down in those verses and helped us to see that we should seek the called. In other words... We should faithfully depend upon and rely upon God to go tell people who are called to hear and receive Jesus Christ. And, and really that we need to focus on those who are ready to hear the gospel. And that there's times where people are not ready to hear the gospel and we should continue to pray and, and be involved. But we should really go after those who are interested and want to know more. And I got to thinking about that and going, okay, so wait a second. How do I know that somebody is actually interested and wants to know more? And actually, even a further question, do I have any responsibility to help somebody get more interested in Jesus? And I think the answer is yes. And I want to show you that from this particular paragraph that we're going to look at today. But I also want us to see not just what the text is saying, but, but to think a little bit about the world around us. And, and let's just start with this. Does, does the world need Jesus? Do you think the world needs Jesus? How many people do you think need Jesus in this world today? Everyone. And how many people don't have Jesus yet? Okay. There's 7.9 billion people currently on this terrestrial ball. And there's an organization that has gone and figured out that 2.5 billion people have never heard of Jesus and don't have the opportunity to hear of Jesus because they're not close to a church or a believer or anybody that could possibly tell them. 2.5 billion people. Actually, they break it down even further and they actually tell us that 70,000 people each day die in that condition. Lost, separated, condemned to hell. Now, it's hard to think about those numbers. We're in the billions and thousands. And I just want you to think, is there somebody that you know that is in that condition? They don't know Jesus. And if they died today, they would spend eternity separated from God. And is it possible that God has loved you so that you could love them in a way that brings them that they're interested in the things of Jesus? And how would we go about that? Especially in the changing world that we're living in. Do you, do you feel like the world, the culture of where we live is kind of changed? It's different than maybe a decade or two ago. Does anybody feel that way? yeah. It is that way. Actually, all sociology studies help us to understand that we used to be living in what we could call a culture of Christendom. Now, I use that word Christendom because I don't want you to think that that means everybody's a Christian. That's not what it is. But we all had some shared values and some shared ways of thinking, whether you were a Christian or not, that we had these common things that kind of would be able to kind of be pieced together. Things like, you know what? It's good to go to church. There is a God. There's heaven and hell, afterlife, and and there's some morals. There's some good and bad things that we should do. Actually, Leslie Newbegin was a missionary in the Church of Scotland who moved to India and was a very successful minister for, for many years there, planted many churches. When he came back to the Western culture in Scotland, he wrote a number of books and he made an observation. He said, For a thousand years, the church has assumed the mission model where the culture said it was okay to go to church and where we had these same shared basic world values. And so evangelism was really just the task of connecting the dots for somebody. Remember when you were in elementary school and you had that little page the teacher gave you and it was like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And and as you drew around the dots, it it suddenly there was like this picture of this lion standing after you, right? Or whatever it was. And that was what evangelism is. It was just, just connect the dots, help them to see Jesus and people were saved. But our culture is different than that now. We now live in a post Christendom culture where those assumed things no longer exist. And so evangelism can't be about just connecting those shared dots anymore. It's got to be something else. We are rapidly, recently and rapidly moving into a post-Christendom culture where people do not think of church as a good thing and something that they want to attend they don't have the dots of the afterlife and a, and a personal God and, and, and morals and values that, that we can agree upon because everybody's making them up for themselves in a, in a pluralistic culture. So much so that one of, our, one of our cultural influencers, an actress named Holly Hunter, was given an interview in the New York Times and she spoke about the idea of spirituality and religion. Now, in our culture, we will still want to be spiritual, but we've redefined how that is. So, she was asked if she is a spiritual or religious person, and Ms. Hunter said, I would say, yeah, I'm a spiritual person. I, do I believe in God? I don't know really what that means. Is there a higher energy? I would say, yes, even if the energy is collective even if it's some kind of Jungian or whole thing that's a collective consciousness that may be God as far as I'm concerned. But does that make me a spiritual person? I would say yes, but not in any organized sense. I'm a religious, am I a religious person? No. Do I go to church? No. It's difficult for me to be supportive of any organized religion. How do we show somebody that doesn't have those dots, how do we show them Jesus? How do we help them come to the spot where they can believe in Jesus when it's, it seems like it's, there's such a huge gap between what I believe and what they believe? We're sensing that there's this change that's going on, but we live in kind of a unique spot, this Lancaster County place. We, we live in a spot that Hasn't felt the full effects of that yet. Actually, sociologists talk about how the coasts have become very post-Christian, the East and West Coast, the, the, the very post-Christian in that sense. But we live in like Bible Belt, Central America, Lancaster County. And yet, you said earlier, you were kind of starting to feel some of those shifts, right? And we're going to feel them more and more because that sociologists don't only, only tell us that it's the East and West Coast that are feeling this. It's the younger generations, millennials and Gen Z are more and more coming from a post-Christian worldview than we could possibly imagine. And so how do we share the gospel in this kind of culture? The struggle becomes how do we connect to somebody that's so different than me that we don't even have any of these common things. How does that happen? I believe that this text of scripture that I'm gonna read here is going to actually show us this answer to the question, It's going to help us find the right starting spot for evangelism in our culture today, wherever we live, whatever generation we are, it's going to help us see that. And so let me read the verses for you. We're looking at Luke chapter 9. Let's read verses 7 to 9 together. It says this. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Today, the title of the message is Show the Curious. We want to show the curious, and I want us to understand exactly what we're aiming for in this message by defining the terms of the title. Let, let's talk about curiosity for a little bit. It's kind of like that little monkey and the man in the yellow hat, you know? You know the definition. The dictionary says, eager to know or learn something. So we need to show those who are eager to know or learn something about Jesus, but then there's this word show. What does that mean? Show, show def- the dictionary says, is to cause or allow to be seen, to display. So we are to show or display those eager to know or learn something about Jesus. That's what we're trying to do. And in a, that's the definition part. In a spiritual uh, sense, we are trying to clear the obstacles so people see the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration that he wants to do in them. One more definition, evangelism. That's what we're talking about here. And a man named Max Stiles has written a book and he defined it this way. I think it's really good. It's to teach or preach the gospel with the aim or intent to persuade or convert. So we are to show those who are curious about Jesus the gospel with the aim to persuade and to convert them to the belief about Jesus in those things. How, in this current cultural climate, do we do that? Well, I believe there's three things that this text tells us, and let me just lay them out for you, and then we'll go by, by, through them one by one. We need to, first of all, find out why they're curious. Second of all, then foster conversation that leads to deeper questions. And then third, make sure we're focusing on Christ. Let's start with the first. How do we show the curious? One, by finding out why they're curious. We need to be curious about their curiosity. And so I, I've been thinking a little bit about this. Why do, get, why do people get curious about Jesus? I want to suggest to you five, and it's not an exhaustive list. There's probably others. But let's just kind of begin by here because it's going to show us what to be looking for, how to find out if somebody's actually curious, First of all, people are curious because they're confused. They're trying to figure out the facts. They've heard about Jesus, but it doesn't line up with what they thought and believed before, and so they're they're just kind of groping around in the dark. They're trying to figure it out. They're confused. Secondly, they're confronted. They've heard about Jesus. They see the the demands that it makes on one's life if you believe in him, and and they, they realize that's different than how I am, and I'm not sure I like it. I, I don't like that somebody tells me to do something. I don't like that t- somebody tells me that I'm wrong and that I need to change and that I need to be different. And so, and so I'm trying to eliminate the threat of this conviction that comes from being confronted with Jesus. Third, they're consumed. They're consumed hoping for better life than what they have. They're, they're longing for change. It, it, it can't just be like this. There's got to be something better. And so they're consumed with that. Fourth, they might be confounded. And in other words, they, they, they're just something interesting and different about how things are, are taught about Jesus. And, and I'm just, I'm still kind of, it's kind of like the confused, but I'm just confounded in it. And then finally, they want completeness. They've tasted a little bit of who Jesus is. And as somebody who's been created by him... They, they, they've tasted, they're like, it's broken, but I've, I've got this little taste and I, and I just want to know more. I want to know what it tastes like to be whole and uh, from my creator. And I would just say that this is the right starting point. That we should start here. We should start with finding out why people are curious about Jesus. If you don't know, if, if you have a friend who you know doesn't believe in Jesus and you want them to believe in Jesus, start with this. Find out if they're curious and what they're curious about. That's actually what's happening in this story that we just read. We see here that people and Herod are curious. Notice in verse 7, it says that Herod is curious because of all that was happening and he was perplexed. Now that's a word for curious, but It's not just like eager to learn or know, perplexed is actually confused. That's what it actually means. So Herod is confused. There's this teacher that is trending and there's these crowds and there's these hearing about these miracles and and he's like, what is going on? Why does he even ask that question? Because if we read in the other previous eight chapters, there have been these amazing things like exorcisms that Jesus has performed. He has cast demons out of people. That gets the curiosity up. There's this, been this preaching that is changing people's lives. What is going on? And then there's all these healing moments where something supernatural happens and somebody who had a, a shriveled, crippled arm suddenly has full strength and movement of it. What in the world? Herod is curious and confused and he's not alone. Actually, it seems like all the people are rather confused as well because when when he's asking about it, they're like, well, it might be John the Baptist raised from the dead. John the Baptist was this great prophet that had just been on the scene and it was like, maybe it's him come back to life. Others were like, no, it's Elijah, which Elijah was somebody that that those who were looking for the Messiah would have known was a sign of, for the Messiah coming. So so they were they would have known, this Jewish context and culture would have known that there was this prophecy about this appearance of somebody like Elijah and maybe it was him. Or maybe we can't identify exactly who it was. It was just one of the Old Testament prophets but they've been raised to life. Notice what they're saying here. They're, They're saying at this point there's some sort of prophet running around. And it's, some sort of supernatural thing. There's lots of reference to resurrection. But while they get all of those observations right, they get the conclusion all wrong. They're close, but they're not right, and so they're confused, and someone needs to connect the dots for them. But there's a second version of curious that's going on here as well. In verse 9, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who's this? And here we see that Herod is curious because he's been confronted. He's like, wait a second, I beheaded John the Baptist. Now, we need to know a little bit about Herod and the John the Baptist thing to understand what's going on here. So, um, does anybody remember there was somebody named Herod who was trying to kill baby Jesus? This is not the guy. This is this guy's dad. He was Herod the Great. Herod the Great had a number of sons, and when he turned his kingdom over, he he didn't turn the whole thing to one son. He split it up among sons. And so there was Herod Philip, and then there was Herod that we're talking about here, Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas was his actual name. Actually, the word Herod, it's not actually a proper name. It's not like it's the first name. It's actually more like a title. It's like king or governor Antipas. So Herod, governor Antipas, is this particular guy. We also know that in the Bible, there's another Herod that's mentioned in Acts, and that was actually Herod Antipas, that was actually his nephew who killed James, the leader of the church, in, in, in the book of Acts. Now, do you have your Herods right? No. Right. Not Herod the Great, not Herod that killed James, Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, the one that lived when Jesus was there. And Herod, actually in Luke chapter three, verse 20, it tells us that Herod threw John the Baptist into prison. And and we don't actually hear in the gospel of Luke what happened to John. Matthew and Mark actually tell the story. And and we don't even know until this chapter, chapter nine, that John the Baptist was dead. The gospels of Mark and, and Matthew record the fact that Well, Herod, let me just describe Herod for you. Do you think Herod was a good guy or a bad guy? Okay, so let me just prove it for you. He was a politician who was like, think of all the negative things about a politician. There's some good politicians, he was not one of them. He was always conniving, he was always, he was sly, he was deceptive, he was all of those things. He got in trouble with the emperor because he tried to, throw one over on him and somehow made it out still alive he was a politician but not just a politician he also uh his family life was messed up he he had a wife um and then he saw his brother's wife and convinced her to divorce his brother and marry him and even stranger it's actually his niece in the midst of that oh my god it's a mess and her name was Herodias, but but the whole incident with John the Baptist, Herodias, Herod Antipas threw this massive party, there was drunkery and all that kind of stuff, and and then Herodias had her daughter dance, this sexual kind of dance, and Herod was so enthralled with it, he said he'd give her half the kingdom, which meant he was gonna get rid of wife number two if he was gonna do that and take his daughter, but she said, no, actually, mom told me we want John the Baptist's head on the platter, and so he did it. So, Herod, not a good guy. When I read the word Herod, I want you to boo. Can you do that? All right. This is how you read the Bible, by the way, when you get to Herod, okay? All three of them, it doesn't matter. They're all... Now, Herod the Tetrarch... Boo. Good job. And then in verse 9, Herod said... Correct. You are doing such a great job today, class. Well done. You see, Herod... Well done. I did say that. Tell him to do that, didn't I? Yeah. He... (laughs) He was confronted. John the Baptist I beheaded... There's all this word that this is maybe John the Baptist resurrected and and I'm not only confused about that because there's this resurrection part of it, but I'm also like internally when you say the word John the Baptist, I remember I'm the one that chopped his head off on the platter for some dance. I think that would bring a little bit of conviction into his life and somebody needs to clarify the convicting work of the Holy Spirit for him. But there's also a third category here. We see in verse 9, it's still his own words John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? It's interesting. This is the greatest question you can ask in life Who is Jesus? The historical figure Jesus, who is that? And people have been curious for centuries about who he is, who is the identity of Jesus. And Luke has been trying to get us to ask this question. As you read the gospel, he keeps bringing up this question. Actually, four times already, he's caused us to ask the question. Let let me show you how. In Luke chapter 5, verse 21, there was a man paralyzed on a bed who was brought with his friends to Jesus. And Jesus healed him and forgave him. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the first time it's asked in the Gospel of Luke, who is Jesus? The second time in Luke 7.20, when the man had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you asking, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So it wasn't just the crowds and the Pharisees, it was John the Baptist who was even asking, who is Jesus? Then Luke 7, 49, there was a group of Pharisees that got together, had a party, invited Jesus to it, and a woman showed up and poured expensive perfume over his feet and washed it with her hair. And it says this, then those who were at the table, Simon the Pharisee who had the party with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Sins. It was three times the question has been asked, who is Jesus in the gospel of Luke? And then once more in Luke chapter eight, he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they, the disciples marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? They were out in the boat, you know, and he calmed the sea. Who is this? Somebody needs to show them Jesus. And I'm suggesting that the way that we do this and the way the text is actually leading us is to help us understand that we start with finding out why they're curious. Why are they asking the question, who is this Jesus? Now, let me just piggyback off something Pastor Ed said last week. He said the beginning of evangelism is prayer. I believe that so much. I believe we have to be praying. And he encouraged us, all of us, to create a list of people that we know that need Jesus. Now, you might know them very well and very personally. They might be somebody that you just know. They don't know Jesus yet. You don't even fully have a relationship yet. But there needs to be kind of a list of people that you pray for regularly that don't know Jesus. Did you you build that list? you have that list somewhere? If you weren't here last week or you didn't do what Pastor Ed suggested, maybe just write down right now. Write down some names. Pull out your phone. Get a list going. Who are some people who need Jesus? I'm serious, guys. Don't just sit there and listen. Like, have a list. Right? And then I would just suggest that one of the things that you're doing when you're praying is, is that you're praying, yes, Lord, lead them to Jesus and maybe use me to do it. But, but maybe even more specifically, God, would you make them curious? Can I just suggest that that's a pretty good strategy for evangelism? God, I have a list of names that I would want to come to know you. And could you please make them curious? And then second, could you reveal to me in some way how they're curious? Probably because they're going to say something that's going to cue you, okay? You're going to have to listen. But in that, could you pray that, God, could you show me what it is that they're curious about? And then finally, could you help me connect to that curiosity, those are three prayers that I believe that God loves to answer and to, to, to just overwhelmingly answer yes to in that way. So I've been praying a little bit about um, some evangelistic opportunities. I'm rather new. I've only, we just moved here back in February of last year. And, and so... <clears throat> It's hard to build new relationship, new evangelistic relationships. And um, there's this one guy that, I, that I've been getting together with a, a, on a semi-regular basis and, and I started praying for him and I found the connection point. It was his son. You see, we were sitting there, we were talking and he was saying, I, 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 he'd grown up in a religious environment and had been taken to church and as a kid and, and, um, and now his own child started asking him questions that he didn't know how to answer. And his son's interest was, uh, what is the beginning of the world? How did that all come about? And, and, and what is this evolution thing and, and, and with the dinosaurs and, and, and all of the, the, the process of all of that? And he says, I don't know how to answer. I want to tell him about, about what I learned in the Bible a long time ago about creation, but I, I just don't know how to do it. Connection point. Connection point. So we've started to have this conversation about like, hey, my church is doing this thing on the, on, on the book of Genesis. You should come to church. And he never came to church during Genesis. We can keep praying about that, okay? We have to look for some more opportunities. But then I started saying, you know what? There's there's this awesome thing called the Creation Museum. I think your boy would love it. There's this Ark Encounter. You should go see that. That piqued his interest. Oh, there's all sorts of books that that are produced about that. Uh, Like all of a sudden, we're finding opportunities to have conversations to help tie him to the confusion that he's had of his religious past, but never having a personal relationship with Jesus because his son is asking questions. You see, that's what we're looking for. I don't know how that story's going to end. I just want you to know, like, look for opportunities. Find the curiosity and begin to use that to explain Jesus to them. Now, with that, let me just introduce or, or reintroduce the concept that Pastor Ed talked about last week. He talked about ripe fruit evangelism. So I went to Pastor Ed's house and I got some of those bananas he was talking about last week. <laughs> and apparently Pastor Ed doesn't like eating ripe bananas. So... Actually, Costco had no ripe bananas, okay? I I found one from earlier this week that I had in my house. Costco right now, don't go to Costco for bananas. They're all like this, okay? (laughs) Unripe, hard, not ready. And he talked about evangelism and how we we need to find a way where we can connect to people who are ready. They're they're ripe to the gospel. They're, They're ready to hear. And even more so, how do we help somebody go from this stage of unripe to being ripe? And I was thinking a little bit about that, and I want to suggest that there are three ripening moments that we should be looking for in people's lives. Three moments, now it's not exhaustive again, but three things that when this is happening, that should be a cue to me to speak up and start showing them Jesus. These things are causing them to become eager to learn about him, whether they know it or not. The first is this. People in transition. People in transition are becoming ripened to who Jesus is. Now when I talk about transition, I'm talking about a couple different things. I'm talking about like they move location. When when somebody geographically has to move, it uproots them. And so those roots aren't there holding them down anymore. And they're curious because they, they, they're curious about everything. You have to find all sorts of new things. You have to find a new pa- mechanic and a new hairdresser and a new grocery store and, a, and, you know, all sorts of new things. And to introduce to them something that they would have never heard about when they were rooted. But now they're uprooted. They're more curious at this point. This is pretty common when you move. People are asking those questions. But it's not just location. It's also life situation. So it's a pretty common trend that we see in the church that people who, uh, they grow up in the church, but then they, they go to college and they quit going to church all through their young adult years. But you know what bring us, brings them back to church? Having kids. Suddenly they're like, oh no, I got to teach my kids about the thing that I used to believe or maybe believe or I'm not sure I believe, but I know I got to get them to church. And so they start coming back to church and it's a life change that's happening there. And that might be true of anything when it comes to age or, or, uh, or changing jobs or just any of those transitions that happen. But there's a second thing that also happens uh, that ripens people to the gospel. Not just transitions, but also tragedy. Now nobody wishes tragedy on anybody. But when tragedy happens because this world is broken, it causes people to ask questions that they wouldn't have even... Mm-hmm crossed their minds before and if it crossed their mind they would have pushed it away and not thought about it but suddenly this tragic event happens and it has me thinking about the fact of my mortality and I don't know what it is afterlife or not in the culture of the world that we live in today but suddenly they were willing to have that conversation We should be looking for people, not just in transition, but when tragedy happens, listen, not trying to force it down their throat, winsomely beginning to ask some questions that cause them to go deeper. And then last, people who have been, who have a transcendent moment. So transcendent moments are those experiences beyond just the normal physical way of life. They can't explain it moments. I can't explain what happened. Sometimes it comes because they're riding a bike over a mountain and they see the sunset. And other times it, <coughs> it's just something that suddenly hits them and they're, <coughs> excuse me, and they have this transcendent, like almost out of body, but I, I don't know what it is, but something was pursuing me. <coughs> and I would just say this whether it's transition, tragedy, or transcendent moment, don't miss them, don't miss the opportunity. And don't explain it away. Be curious yourself. Help them be curious. Which is really what we see as the next stage in this process of connecting with the curious, of showing the curious. We know that we need to find out why they're curious. Now what do we do? We find out they're curious. What do we do? We need to secondly foster conversations that lead to deeper questions. It's transition, it's tragedy, it's a transcendent moment. It's an opportunity for you to foster a conversation. Before, they wouldn't even talk to you about spiritual things. But suddenly, we can have this little chat. And I think it's our job to show the curious, to, to foster that. To Foster means to encourage and to promote the development of. And so we want to promote the development of their questions to lead them to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. It's fascinating when you think about the story that we have here before us about Herod. I'm going to say three-quarters of you are still awake. Okay, so in his story, we begin to find some interesting clues in the gospel of Luke. Luke 9 is not the first time he shows up. And we get a clue about why he's even curious because in Luke chapter 8, verse 3, it introduces a character to us by the name of Joanna. And it says that Joanna was the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's household manager. So the Tetrarch has a household manager, and the household manager has a wife who is supporting Jesus in his ministry. Actually, Luke chapter 8 tells us of a group of women who supported logistically and financially the ministry of Jesus as he walked around. And Joanna is one of these ladies. She's been converted. She believes so much that she's contributing time, effort, and money to Jesus' ministry. Do you not think that she's told her husband about that and that somehow slipped into a conversation with Herod at some point? I asked for it. So, Joanna, I believe it's possible that she was showing Jesus to Herod. So, then in Luke 9, we see his curiosity. We see his, his confrontation. We're going to see, again, something that, a question that he asked here. Look at verse 9. It says, and he sought to see Jesus. Do you think he ever got to see Jesus? Do you think the Tetrarch got to see Jesus in any way? He did. Turn over in Luke chapter 23. I'll show you where it happened. In Luke chapter 23, we see the story of Jesus on trial, and he's been before Pilate. And Pilate, realizing the the political nature of what's going on here and the slippery slope of of what he is, he realizes there might be a way out. And so at verse six, it says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man, Jesus, was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, how do you think he responded? Read it. He was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod's curious. He's glad. He's longing to have this interaction. He's asking for a sign about who Jesus actually is. This is awesome. We see here Herod ripen to the opportunity to see the gospel of Jesus. Jesus. So conversations and interactions at some point have led him to a deeper question. And I believe that it's when those who have the conviction about who Jesus is begin to foster these opportunities and conversations that people can actually decide if they want to believe Jesus or not. Think about that though, what I just said. When we are convinced about who Jesus is, We can foster the opportunities that come before us. So my question is, are you convinced? If you're going to be a sent official representative of the king who's supposed to tell people about Jesus, are you convinced about him yourself? Do you have a solid footing and foundation and belief on who he is? The whole purpose of this paragraph in Luke is Christology. It's the understanding of who Jesus Christ actually is. Do you have it? Well, before you get too intimidated, let me just say, let's do this as a group project. Can we do that? Nobody individually gets embarrassed. Can we do a group project here? I know that might be a little bit hard because it's Lancaster County and we're all stoic and Dutch in our culture. But can can you talk back to me in the sermon? Can you do it? Awesome. All right. So let's think a little bit about... What do we need to know about Jesus? What are some core things about Jesus that we are taught from Scripture, that we should believe and be able to help other people believe as well? Let me suggest five of them. The first one is this. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Do you believe that? Yes. How do you know? The Bible says it. Where in the Bible does it say it? Okay, so I want you to shout out right now, okay? There's lots of places in the Bible that talk about Jesus being fully God or fully man. Does anybody have a verse or two for me? John 1, excellent. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the Logos, being Jesus Christ himself, is God. And then later in in the chapter, in verse 14, it says, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glories of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is fully God and fully man. There's a second thing I think we need to be able to communicate and and be convinced about, and it's that Jesus died as our substitute. Anybody glad that Jesus died as your substitute so you didn't have to die and pay eternally for your sins? So, does the Bible teach that? Where? John 3.16. What else? Lots of places. Ooh, good one. Isaiah 53. What else? Here's a very precise verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that's Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great substitution of our faith. He had no sin, but he was made sin so that we could have his perfect righteousness. Anybody pretty excited about that? Yes. Yeah, we should know that and be able to tell others about it. Here's the third thing. Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Anybody think that's pretty amazing? Shout if you do. Yeah. All right. So let's get some light onto that heat here. Where is the truth of that found in scripture? What's a good verse to help us understand that? Anybody? Anybody? Deliver it to you of first importance? Anybody? 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For I delivered for you to, as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. And then it goes on to talk about all the witnesses that saw him. That's awesome. That's confirmation. We can put our foot firmly on the belief that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. The skeptic then mockingly says, yeah, well, then where is he? You got an answer for that too, right? Where's Jesus right now? Right hand, of right hand of the Father. So glad you're specific. Well done. He's not just in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 8, 1, and lots of places says, now the point of that, what we're saying is that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's where he is now. And is that not where he belongs? Right? When we worship him, that's where he is. Praise God. Okay, so he's at the right hand of the Father. Is he just up there just minding his own business, not taking, you know, just not really interested in us. And is that how that goes? No. How do you know? Because Jesus will return to earth with power and glory. He will. Yeah? Are you looking forward to that? Yes. Are you longing for that? Yes. Somebody shout, Come Jesus soon. Come, Jesus. John 14, 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Amen. That's hope. That's hope. This isn't it. It gets so much better. That's hope. Are you convinced about this? And and could you actually help somebody see this out of your conviction? That's what those verses are for, by the way. I hope you were writing them down, tracking them. Like if your next Bible memorization project should be to memorize all five of those verses and just kind of get in order. He's fully God, he's fully man. He's my substitute. He rose bodily from the grave. I can show all of these things. I don't even have to open my Bible app. I got them in my head. I'm so convinced that I can bring clarity to the confused. That's what our job is, to bring clarity to the confused. To bring clarity, not just to the confused, but to the one who is convicted. Remember how Herod is confronted and he feels that conviction on the inside. Does anybody love to feel convicted? No, we don't like that feeling. That's a pretty bad feeling. Nobody likes that. And, and out of that bad feeling, we develop a bad belief system. We, we are like, I just want to avoid conviction. Anybody ever had that thought before? Yes. You can join me, okay? Don't leave me hanging. I want to avoid conviction because it makes me feel bad. I want to get away from it. But we have to bring clarity to the fact that conviction is not actually a bad thing. It's a good thing. Let me show you why. Jesus, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, told us why conviction is a good thing when he told us his mission and what he was trying to accomplish. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Victory news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, so many times we believe that conviction is this horrible thing because God just wants to make me painful for doing bad things to him. And Jesus is saying here, that's not why I came. I came here because I want to give good news to the poor. I want to give liberty to the captives. I want the blind to have their sight. I want the oppressed to have their liberty. And I want to give you a gift you don't deserve in the favor of grace. What if when people were convicted because they've been confronted in the perfection of Jesus and they see their imperfection, that they believed his message here, that that's good news, that there's rescue, that there's no longer has to be captive to sin and blind to sin and oppressed by sin, but you can have grace. You don't deserve it. You're a sinner and an enemy and you've shaken your fist at him and he's come and he's wrapped his arms around you and loved you instead. You see, we have to come to the conviction that that when God confronts us, that's a good thing because there's good news to rescue us in the midst of realizing what's actually happening there. Now, it's fascinating what happened with Herod. (laughs) We see in his story, in Luke 23, let's just continue what happened there. In Luke 23, we see So Herod questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus didn't answer. He was curious and he was asking questions and Jesus didn't answer him. And so what happened was the chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arrayed him in splendid clothing and sent him back to Pilate. (laughs) He had Jesus before him And he had heard, I believe, all the evidence that he needed to hear about Jesus before this moment. He knew in his conscience that this man was perfect and had done no crime. And instead, he sends him to his death. He rejected Jesus. Which should help us to see this. Curiosity is not enough to save you. Only belief and faith in Jesus Christ can do that. John 16, 7 and 8 tells us that it's the Holy Spirit that convicts within us. Our job is to show the curious, just show them, be the witness to them. It doesn't matter if they respond positively or negatively, that's not your job. Your job is just simply to be the witness. So, why is it that we get so intimidated and think that if it doesn't end in somebody coming to Christ, then I'm a terrible evangelist? That's not true. You're a terrible evangelist if you're not faithful to make the message known. Not whether somebody receives it or not. So I've had these experiences before, positive and negative. Actually, a couple of Thanksgivings ago, I had this awesome opportunity. I was living in Kuala Lumpur, I was a pastor of an international church there and there was this lady from Iran who was coming to our church. She had fled Iran because of all the oppression there and and had come to faith in Jesus Christ and was living as a refugee. No citizenship, no rights. It was a horrible life to live, but she was coming to our church. And she came to our church for for a long time before she said, I'm gonna try to leave and make my way through the refugee road through Syria and Turkey and across the Mediterranean, up into Europe. I think I have more opportunity there. We were like, don't do it, don't do it because it's so dangerous to do. But she said, before I go, could you come to my house? I'll feed you some Iranian food, which, by the way, is the best food in the world. Like you heard that I was going to eat Iranian food on Thanksgiving Day and you felt bad for me. But I'll just tell you right now, like that, that turkey and that mashed potato and the sweet potato pie that you can just all mix up and suck through a straw carries no weight to Iranian food. It's just way better, okay? So I'm interested because of the food. But then she says this, would you come talk to my sons? I have three young adult sons who are asking about the faith. Would you come talk to them? They have questions I can't answer. Could you please help? So Marie and I came and we went over to their house and we spent hours, I don't remember, it was awesome, the food just kept coming and their questions just kept flowing and they had so many good questions that you wouldn't think that a young Iranian man who'd been wounded by the world would want to ask, but all three of them were asking and they were so interested and we got to the end of the day and I'm like, so do you think that you want to actually put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And they didn't. And it would be really easy to feel like a failure at that moment, but there's more to the story. They took that dangerous trip, and they made made their way through Syria, Turkey, across the Mediterranean, and through Greece up, and they ended up in the Netherlands, and we finally hear that they're safe. And then we heard even better news. Not long after they got there, they started going to a church, and all three boys got baptized. So listen. When we show the curious, sometimes that's how it ends. Now, I didn't get to bring him across the line of faith, but somebody else did, but I was part of the process, and I would just tell you that's a, that's a faithful witness. That's what we're called and sent to do. But I have another story. I planted a church down in Quarryville not long ago, over a decade ago, I guess. That's a long time ago. And it doesn't seem like a long time ago, but then I said it, and I'm like, ugh. Oh. And we had these neighbors Uh, They were renting the house next to us and young couple and no interest whatsoever in the things of religion, knew we were planting a church, knew we were a pastor, never wanted to come to church, never wanted to interact with us about spiritual things in any way. Uh, It was just just a non-thing. They were resistance to the whole thing until suddenly she came knocking on our door with the urgency like she couldn't wait to get into the front porch. She was knocking and knocking on that door and she came in and she had this urgent question. She said, my mom just committed suicide. And I was taught that if you commit suicide, you're condemned to hell. It's an unpardonable sin. Is that true? Now, this woman who'd never asked a spiritual question before just experienced this incredible tragedy and she begins to ask questions and we stood on the porch and we answered all sorts of questions. She was just so convinced that that, that it was true that her mom was going to hell because she committed suicide. I kept saying no that's not what the Bible teaches that suicide it's a horrible thing and it shouldn't be done and it's murder yes but it it doesn't condemn you to hell and 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 if she put her faith in Jesus which I don't know if that's true or not but if she did there's heaven and, and and do you want to ever do that and Radio silence. We never heard from her about a spiritual thing again. Was I a failure there and a success with the Iranian boys? No, no, I wasn't. I believe that I did what was called of me to do in that moment, but the results, listen, they're just... She was green and not ready, and those boys somehow became ready, and it was the Holy Spirit's conviction that did it that used a witness to accomplish that thing. Can you do that? Can you be that? I think we can. I think all of us can. When we recognize it's God who transforms, it's just my job to be the official representative, the apostello-sent representative to skillfully be Christ's witness. By skillfully, I mean find out if they're curious, be praying about it, and then when the door opens, just tell them what you know, what you're already convinced of, and maybe prep a little bit before that, right? <laughs> I was thinking about ideas that set ourselves apart and, and make people curious as well as answer curiosity. I thought of five things. Number one, We need to ask questions. We generally are horrible conversationalists. We come into a conversation and all we want to do is talk and we don't think it's important to listen and all we want to do is share our opinion and we don't care about the other people's opinion. But what if we were kind and gentle and interested in the people and we just asked some questions while we were talking to them? It's fascinating how much a person will talk if you just ask a question. By the way, I think that that's very much like Jesus. When we ask a question, we are stepping into their world. And that's incarnational. That's Christ-like as he stepped into our world for our benefit, we do the same when we ask in that way. So ask questions and then shut up and listen. Number two, if married, speak well of your spouse. We're talking about this in our small group. This is my idea. This came right out of my small group. They were like, listen, when we just speak well of our spouse, that causes all sorts of problems in people's lives because they're normally talking terrible about their spouse. What if we just live differently? And what if we lived the way that a Christ-like marriage should be and speak well of our spouse? And then likely, number three, honor our parents and family members. Sometimes that's really hard. I get it. Sometimes it's really hard. But could we, without lying, without making stuff up, could we just speak well of our parents and our family members? That makes a difference in a world that doesn't do that. Here's four. Suffer well. When things go bad, could you just maybe do a little Bible study? What does it, what does Christ want me to do when I suffer? Because it's different than the complaining and the belly aching and the all the things that come out of how people normally suffer if we suffer well in faith. And then number five, pray. It was the first thing last time. Now it's the last thing. Pray. Pray. I was fascinated. I learned that our church, through the food pantry, distributed just a request of, is there any way that we can pray for you? Families in our community who don't normally come to our church, who, could we just pray for you? And we got 85 prayer requests out of it. Can I just tell you this? Here, here's some prayer requests. Please pray for my family as we transition into homelessness. Pray that to help find some stability and a job that so I'm able to provide for my family and pay my bills. Pray that my cancer is healed. Please, keep, please pray that my fa- keep my family in prayer as we navigate the loss of my husband and father and a father. Just one word: depressed. Pray for control of inflation and meats in stores. Last, I I think everyone in the world needs prayer. I don't know if you know this, but every service down in Pastor Jerry's office, there's a prayer team that anybody in the church can join and be a part of any Sunday. Like you could go to church second service, but first service be down there praying for first service. Let me just say that's an awesome opportunity. Guess what? That list is down there. You can pray for all 85 if you show up next Sunday and have that list there. Pray evangelistically while you're at church. That's a novel idea. Here's the last thing I want us to see find out why people are curious, then foster conversations to deeper questions, and then finally, this focus on Christ. So many times we we get there and the person asks the question and then we talk about everything but Jesus, all sorts of other ideas and things, and we're afraid to actually say the word Jesus and speak of Jesus. And let me just say that, listen, if you've done the hard work of figuring out the curiosity and fostering that in conversation, then get to the spot where you just talk about Jesus. Focus on Jesus. And can I just tell you that in this current cultural climate, focus on his goodness and his beauty before the truth of who he is. So in the postmodern culture that we described earlier, if you were to show up and you were to say, hey, at church, I learned five core truths about Jesus, let me tell you what they are, they'd be like, ah, who cares? I make up my own truth. That's the world that we live in today, right? And so connecting the dots of truth, while has its place, let me just suggest, the place is not first, it's after you've done some other things, Figure out why they're curious. You ask them deeper questions and get them to ask questions about is God good and is he beautiful? That's a way better strategy. Let me explain why. There's a German sociologist and philosopher named Jürgen Habermas and he said this, science and numbers can tell you what you can do and how to do it efficiently, but it can never tell you if you should do it or not. This has always been true, by the way. But what he's saying is, you can't get an ought to out of an is. Or put another way, data and numbers can't tell you, truth can't tell you, it can tell you what is, but it can never tell you what you ought to do. We have to connect the truth to the hearer in another way. And I believe that that A man named Blaise Pascal has told us exactly how to do it. Now, Blaise Pascal was a brilliant scientist from a couple hundred years ago, and he said this. He was a Christian. One of the most brilliant Christian minds that you'll ever meet. He said, bring people to the place where they wish Christianity was true and then show them that it's true. Show them God's beauty and goodness and then give them the truth of it. Today, where there's no reason to start with reasoning because they don't believe Christianity is true and they don't want it to be true, we can get an inroad to a conversation and a curiosity about the truth of it if we can show them, if we can ripen them through the goodness and the beauty of who Jesus is. And so we need to compel them to see Christ. Compel means to urge forcefully or irresistibly. How? Well, we need to take up the role as apostello, official representative of the king. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says that we are ambassadors for Christ. Have you ever heard that verse before? You heard that one, right? But notice what it says. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Like that's the appeal that God makes through sent individuals. God says to the unbeliever, we implore you to put your faith in Jesus Christ through us as ambassadors, official representative with a message from the king. And how do we do that? We do that by showing them goodness and beauty first and then truth. We see that in the story of Herod, by the way. Let me just put one more vignette, one more time that Herod is mentioned in Luke is in Luke chapter 13, verse 31. Turn there now. We're gonna end here. Luke 13, 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. He wants to kill you, get away. And Jesus answers, I'm not going away. Let me tell you why. He said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day, and I finish my, cu- my chorus. Jesus is saying three things here. He's saying, I will drive out demons and I will heal. I'm going to continue to minister. I'm not running away because this fox is trying to kill me. Secondly, he, he refers to the third day, which the original hearer, Theophilus, would have understood because he would have remembered that it was Christ that rose on the third day and that there's a reference by Jesus before his death, burial, and resurrection to his resurrection right here. And then third, he says, I'm going to reach my goal, not just to get to Jerusalem, but to complete the redemptive work with which I've been called to do here on earth. Now, I would just have you note these things about that, what Jesus, those three things Jesus said First of all, he was proclaiming, I'm good. I heal and I overcome evil. Tell people who are curious about Jesus, he's good. Come up with stories from your life that show that he's good. Point to scripture that show he's good. The second thing is, I'm beautiful. Jesus talks about his resurrection. And if there's anything more beautiful than that <clears throat> He accomplished the work of forgiveness and rescuing his enemies, whom he loves deeply. It's the story of the resurrection. Show how beautiful it is to follow Jesus. And then lastly, he says, I'm appealing to you. He says, I'm going to complete my redemptive work regardless of resistance. I'm going to appeal to you. I'm compelling. I'm insisting. Listen, when we get to the spot where the door is open and the curious are asking questions and we're in conversation with them, don't shy away from getting to Jesus. Get to Jesus and show that he's good and show that he's beautiful and show that he's appealing and compelling people to follow him. That's what it means to be sent to show the curious. Remember how to do it? Find out. Are they curious? When you find them curious, foster a conversation that leads to deeper questions and get convicted yourself about those things too. And then lastly, focus on Christ, on his beauty, on his goodness, and then the truth of who he is. That's how God wants us to show the curious. Let's pray and ask him for help in that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and the richness of it. And how a little paragraph of scripture like this with a horrible character at the center is used to surface the question, who is Jesus? And when people are confused and confronted and just wondering, Lord, our job that you've sent us to be as your witnesses is to show them. Lord, would you build us in skillful witnesses of you who learn how to find how people are curious and then, and then once we find that to, to foster the conversations that lead to deeper questions and lead to us to be able to share Jesus and Lord help us not to be intimidated and not open our mouth but to clearly de- proclaim who he is knowing that the outcome is not based on us, it's your job for the outcome our job is simply to faithfully make it known Lord would you embolden us would you encourage us Would you equip us even more as we seek to do that? And Lord, in that, would you help us to see how beautiful it is that you have rescued us and then sent us to help rescue others. Help us to over and over see the goodness of salvation and the blood that was shed for us. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.